Our scripture reading this morning is Galatians 4, 21 through 27 and 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the word of God. Thank you very much, Pat, for that fine reading of Scripture, God's Word. And I invite you to turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 54. Galatians 4 provides the background for the passage we're looking at this morning. But before going any further, I must express to you the profound joy it is for Mary Alice and me to be here among you and to have spent this past week. We consider you family as I came to Memphis, Tennessee in 1969 when my father, Earl Stevens, was called to be your senior pastor and spent my high school years here. And Mary Alice and I met. You supported us and prayed for us during more than 15 years of ministry in Europe. You prayed for us as I pastored in Portland for nearly 15 years. And now, over these last seven years, as we've been back on the European continent, you have once again picked up both prayer and financial support, and we are deeply, deeply grateful. We value your friendship. You are family. Nevertheless, all of those years represent change. Few of us like change or to be changed except maybe a wet baby. The Apostle Paul assures us that one day we will all be changed. <laughs> For not all will sleep, but all will be changed. That might be a good verse to put over your nursery, by the way. We can count on the fact that the work that God began in us, he will complete. As Paul reminds young Timothy, he will finish the good work that he began in you. And that applies equally as well to First Evangelical Church during a time of change. God's workers pass on. We just sang about God's work, God's servants. God's workers pass on. God's work carries on. And he is faithful to bring to completion that which he has begun. Our end is secure. The passage we're looking at this morning from Isaiah chapter 54 speaks to the people of God in a time of change. Isaiah chapter 54 verses 1 to 3, and if you have had a birthday in the last 12 months, 
I invite you to stand with me for once again the reading of Scripture. And as we read, you'll understand why I said that. Sing, O barren one, you who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tents and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Lord, as we once again look at your word, we ask that the Spirit of God would illuminate our hearts and move within us that we might put into practice in our daily lives that which you have to say to us today. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I have never preached on this passage before. And as I was asked after we arrived in the States to come and share the word of God this week, which is an immense privilege. The Lord led me precisely to Isaiah 54, verses 1 to 3. I'll have to admit that as I opened the passage, I asked, well, what does birthing babies and pitching tents have to do with us today? After all, I've never birthed a baby, though I've participated in the process four times. And I've had my difficulties over the year pitching tents. If you want to know more about that, you can ask me later. More than that, we can ask a passage like this written over 2,700 years ago to the people of Israel in a different time, different epoch, different context, different culture. How does it speak to you and me today here at First Evangelical Church? We must remember as we think about this text, that it is in the context of the entire book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, I would remind you, is a miniature depiction of the Bible. 66 chapters, 39 chapters that speak of judgment, 27 chapters that speak of consolation, 39 chapters that speak of the throne of God, 27 chapters that speak of the Lamb of God. And the prophet Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Isaiah chapter 53, begins to paint a beautiful portrait for us of the sufferings of our Savior. And he does so in graphic detail, 3D, full color, high definition, present tense, taking place before our very eyes as he depicts the human sufferings of our Savior. Isaiah 53, verse 3, despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Isaiah 53, in verse 5, pierced for our iniquities, crushed for our transgressions. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. This is God's scandalous love, or as one modern author has put it, 
It is God's crazy love. Why do I say scandalous? A scandal is that which brings public offense. And so Isaiah says, who has believed our message? It's unbelievable that the God of the universe would come down and conquer evil by suffering. In the postmodern age in which we live, the only real evil in the world is suffering, not sin. And to think that the God of the universe would conquer evil by suffering, that is scandalous. But only as you and I are confronted personally and intimately, profoundly by that scandalous love of the God of the universe, can we do what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 1, burst into praise, sing and shout aloud. That should be our first response. For you see, Isaiah 54 and 55 detail the expected response of the outpouring of God's mercy and grace so graphically depicted in Isaiah chapter 53. And not only should we sing aloud, but we should serve. How do we serve? We serve by enlarging the tents. We serve by strengthening the stakes. We serve by not holding back. What did that mean for the people of Israel at the time in which it was spoken? Well, in order to understand that, we need to remind ourselves of what this imagery is all about. Jeremiah prophesying in the 7th century BC says this, Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 20, I would invite you to turn there with me. I hope I hear some rustling of the pages of your Bibles. Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 20. Look in your Bibles with me. It says, my tent is destroyed, God says, speaking through Jeremiah. All its ropes are snapped. My children are gone from me and are no more. No one is left now to pitch my tent or to set up my shelter. Jeremiah Some 100 years before the Babylonian captivity prophesied of the destruction of Jerusalem, the people of God is depicted as a tent that would be destroyed. But then 100 years prior to that time, Isaiah already gives a promise of restoration. That's found in Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 20. And this promise of restoration transports us all the way into the end. Indeed, as we sang earlier, the outcome is secure. And here we find a depiction of what will take place ultimately in not only the millennial kingdom, but in that eternal new heavens and new earth. Isaiah chapter 33 and verse 20, your eyes will see Jerusalem, a tent that will not be moved. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its ropes broken. But until that time, again, you and I are to do three things. We are to enlarge the tent. We are to strengthen the stakes. And we must not, we must not, we must never, never hold back. Lengthen our cords, Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 2. Notice what the prophet says. 
Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Lengthen your cords. In order to understand the significance of this passage, I would like to call your attention to two what we might call bookends. The first bookend takes us all the way back to the patriarchal period. After all, when Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied, the people of Israel were not living in tents. But the graphic imagery of this passage takes us back to the Abrahamic promise. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. I invite you to turn with me there as this passage is so significant. Even Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 9 reminds us that Abraham lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob. And notice what the text says. You are well familiar with it. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 2. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. Now notice, you will be a blessing. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This promise to Abraham comes at a time following the fall of man, Genesis chapter 3, and that first gospel, Genesis 3.15, that can be twinned with John 3.15, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so even in the Garden of Eden, the eternally outgoing God of mission bursts on the scene, already giving the promise of his redemptive plan for the ages. And then we come, due to the rebellion of mankind against God, to the scattering of the nations in, verse, in chapter 11 of the book of Genesis. And it is following on the heels of the scattering of the nations that once again, our missional God, our God of worldwide compassion and love, gives this promise to Abraham, not so that Abraham himself would bask in that promise with all of its benefits, but that Abraham would be used as an instrument of God's blessing to the nations of the world. That is the heart of God from the very beginning. God's intent was to bring into existence a type of divine counterculture through which his greatest blessings would be brought to all peoples. Israel was intended to be a hearth through which the light and warmth of the gospel would be brought to the peoples of the world. But there's a catch. As we read from Galatians chapter 4 this morning, Abraham tried to make it happen on his own. Abraham wanted to jumpstart God's promises. Seeing that Sarah was barren for a period of time, that he did not have that promised descendant, he decided to take matters into his own hands. In times of change, you and I are tempted to do exactly the same thing. And we so quickly forget, as the prophet Zechariah reminds us, it is not by might nor by power but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, God wanted Abraham's obedience, but God also wanted Abraham's dependence. 
and he wants yours and mine as well. As we read from Galatians chapter 4, in spite of Abraham depending upon himself, God nevertheless brought about that promise through Sarah. Of course, we read on the daily news the consequences of Abraham's choices. But at the same time, we can rejoice, those of us who are of faith, that we have been grafted in, that we too are children of Abraham by faith, children of the promise, children of Sarah, not children of the slave woman, by faith in Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can sing. Because of that, we can shout. Because of that, we can burst into praise. Because of that, we can serve and so God wants us to stretch our tent curtains wide. He wants us to enlarge our tents, not speaking of enlarged church campuses necessarily, but enlarged hearts that have a burning passion to reach the nations of the world. And this has been the vision of First Evangelical Church from the very beginning. From Dr. Dudley, Dr. Salto, Earl Stevens, my father, and right on down to today, and definitely on into the future. I will never forget standing right back there near those back windows in 1975. This part of the building had already been constructed. They were beginning to build this auditorium. I remember walking on the construction site before the workers got here with their hard hats, and I was praying according to the spirit of First Chronicles chapter 4 and verse 10, where Jabez says, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. And you know what? Due to the prayers of so many down through the years, God has done exactly that for First Evangelical Church. Today, you have more than 31 missionary units that you support. And this church has continued, even as Israel was intended to be, a hearth to bring the light and warmth of the gospel to the nations of the world. God's heart for the global church is depicted in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. That's the first book in, but I'd like to now take you into the future, Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 to 10. For you see, God's heart is not only to enlarge the tent globally, God's heart is also to enlarge our tent, the tent, the people of God, the church of God, even local churches, ethnically. What do I mean by that? Look at me, look with me at this marvelous depiction of the church, most likely during the period of great tribulation on the earth as we prepare for the future millennial reign of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song. Again, as in Isaiah 54, singing takes place. And by the way, this song is sung by 24 elders, most likely representing 12, the people of Israel, the 12 tribes, 12 representing the 12 apostles, the church of God, that is the people of God represented today through the vehicle of the church of God is what is singing 
in this passage. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you have purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Here we find a picture of God's enlarged tent in the future times and a cacophony of unadulterated praise that is being lifted up to God. Multilingual, multinational, multicultural praise. The Apostle John literally ransacks his Greek vocabulary in order to show us the, the rich diversity of what is on the heart of God. He speaks of tribes, that is, those linked together by lineage, Tongue, those linked together by language, people groups, geopolitical identity, nations, those linked by culture and nationality. Here as we see this heavenly scene, no hint whatsoever of the segregation of Christ's church, no hint whatsoever of people in separate corners of heaven divided up according to color, culture, and class. You see, that is what God wants us to lean into and pray towards and work towards because it is precisely a church of the nations that is best equipped to reach a world of nations. We all at different times struggle with a fatal illness that might be described as monolingual myopia, a disease of the tongue that affects the vision. The Apostle John won't let us get away with that. For the scriptures constantly place before us what is most on the heart of the eternally compassionate, outgoing God of mission. It is the nations. And on God's heart is the fact that he wants this to be even modeled, modeled within the church, modeled in local churches, so that the local church and churches together within the city are a display of what Jesus Christ most prayed for. Oh, that they might be one, even as you, Father, and I are one. Why? In order that the world might believe that I have come in the flesh. My friends, I believe that this is one of the greatest challenges for the church today in a society divided by color, culture, and class. And so we have to ask the question, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the church Consider these facts. Today, local churches across America are 10 times more segregated than their surrounding communities. In fact, today we are more segregated, believe it or not, than before the days of abolition. We are 20 times more segregated than surrounding public schools. And even as we stand to sing, I'll hail the power of Jesus' name, and that marvelous hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers, we are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and doctrine, one in charity, all the while we stand, and we must admit it, in the most segregated hour of American society.
You may not realize this, but as my father left First Evan in 1985 and moved back to Chattanooga, Tennessee, he went with a heart to see racial reconciliation within that city. And he knew that it could only come about not by programming it, not by forcing it, not by human strategies, but he knew it could only come about by prayer, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so he had this vision of starting pastor prayer summits to bring together the wide range of color, culture, and class represented within the churches so that they could learn to pray together and work together and minister together. And I had the joy of attending the first day of that prayer summit in 1999, and though dad's vision was realized, he died on the first day of that prayer summit. But more than being my dad's heart, that's the heart of God. You cannot read through the pages of scripture without realizing it. That is the heart of God. As we enlarge the tents, we must strengthen the stakes. In fact, we must never attempt to enlarge the tent without strengthening the stakes, for that was Abraham's problem. Notice again, verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. I'll never forget an Asian evangelist speaking in this church when I, we first moved here in 1969-70. His name was Greg Tinkson, and he pulled me aside one day, and he looked me in the eye. He said, David, if God calls you into ministry, remember this. You take care of the depth of your ministry, and God will take care of its breadth. And that has been, throughout the years, a constant reminder to me. In good times and in very bad times, I have one responsibility, to take care of the depth of my life, the depth of ministry, and leave the breadth of ministry in the hands of God. How do we develop that? How do we strengthen the stakes well, I believe that there are two primary ways that God has given to us to do that. One is the word of God, and the other is prayer to God. The word of God. We must get a grip on our Bibles. And today in our world with podcasts and so much accessibility to various tools by internet, we can begin to neglect, surprisingly, the Word of God, the pure and simple Word of God. Sometimes we spend more time reading commentators, listening to celebrity preachers, than simply being nourished by the Word of God. So I'm going to ask you to do a little exercise here, and particularly our children, you can watch along and actually participate. In fact, I am sure that if you are under the age of 13 or 14, you're going to be able to do this a lot better than the adults. I'd like you to take your Bible in your hand. Do you have your Bible here today, or are you looking at a digital Bible? <laughs> I encourage you to carry your Bible to church, a written version of the Scriptures Take your Bible in hand. I'd like you to do this. I'd like you to try to hold your Bible with one finger like this. I can't do it very well, but there you go. Can you do that? It's a little difficult, isn't it? 
Ah, I think I heard a Bible drop over here. Now try two fingers. A little easier, isn't it? Add a third, all your fingers. And now do this. Take your Bible and get a grip on it. Well, you know what? The Bible I'm holding is not mine. Apparently, someone didn't get a grip on their Bible. (laughs) I found it in the lost and found here. I only brought my French Bible back with me uh, because we had to pack light. So I brought my French Thompson Chain Reference Bible. So the other day, I had to ask Tori Tori, or I asked Jim, is there, is there a Bible around here that I can use for Sunday morning? So I, this might be your Bible. This might be yours. I hope you can now get a grip on it and take it back. We need to get a grip on our Bible. What do I mean by that? We need to hear the Word of God. Hear the Word of God. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How many of you believe that you need to grow your faith or have God grow your faith? Do you believe God needs to grow your faith? It happens with the word of God. Hear the word of God. Secondly, we need to read the word of God. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Thirdly, we need to study the Word of God. Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. Speaking of the Berean believers, they examined the Scriptures daily to see if what the Apostle Paul was teaching them was actually true. Do you do that with your pastors and leadership? It's a good thing to do. It's healthy. Also, we need to memorize the Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 11. The psalmist says, I have hid your word in my hearts in order that I might not sin against you. And then we must meditate on the word of God. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law will not depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night in order that you might observe to do all that is written therein. Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success, including First Evangelical Church. We also need to obey the word of God, and that's the palm. That enables us to get the grip on the scriptures. James reminds us, don't be deceived. Be not only hearers of the word, do what it says. So we need that first pillar, that is the word of God, if we are to strengthen the stakes, both individually and collectively as a church. Secondly, prayer to God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. You may be here today and you're suffering. You may be here today experiencing pain in your heart. Maybe it's over a a loved one. Maybe it's over a child that has been lost. We've lost a child. Actually, we have four children. Our first one is with the Lord since the age of 22. Maybe you're you're suffering grief and sorrow. Maybe you're in a financial crisis. Maybe your dreams have been shattered. Isaiah 53 tells us, He bore our sorrows and He carried our griefs. He bore our sorrows and carried our griefs. No wonder the writer to the Hebrews says, let us therefore come boldly before the throne of grace in order to find help in time of need.
But you know, in prayer, it's not only God working in us, it's God working through us. I was so pleased to hear of this day of prayer. Jesus reminds his disciples in John chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these will he do. Why? Because I'm going up to the Father, I'm sending my Holy Spirit, and whatever you ask in my name, I will do it in order that the Father might be glorified in the Son. The big idea of that verse is essentially this. The greater redemptive works of Christ are accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit, something Abraham forgot and something you and I forget so all too often. The greater works of Christ are accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. But get this, the last part. This in direct response to believing prayer. I do know that during the years of ministry that my father was here, one of his greatest desires was to see a very, very small group of people who gathered on a weekly basis, probably no more than 10 or 12 or 15, because I attended those prayer meetings, grow to the entire church. Believer, it is prayer that God has given us in, in a certain sense, we have been entrusted with a certain sense of delegated authority to see the greater works of Christ accomplished in our community and the world. And we are not taking advantage of it like we should. I speak to myself. The last word of exhortation that the prophet leaves us here is not only to enlarge the tent, not only to strengthen the stakes, but lastly, to not hold back. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. If Abraham attempted to jumpstart God's promises, Sarah did the opposite. She held back. She did not believe the promises of God. You know, I recognize in my own life, the older I get, I face a certain inertia. A certain inertia physically, but even spiritually. An inertia that pulls me back. I want to be comfortable. I don't want to be like Caleb, who said at the age of 85, give me that hill. I'm as strong as I was when I was 40. And so we have that inertia that pulls us, pulls us back. Some of you think today that you can remain in spiritual neutral. That you can just simply at this stage of life coast a bit. And here again, I'm not talking about doing more activity. I'm talking about these two major pillars, the word of God and prayer and all that that represents. But you cannot you must not pull back. You see, we are either going upstream or downstream. In the spiritual life, we are either in drive or we are in reverse. There is no neutral. And that's probably why Jesus said, hey, no man can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other you cannot 
You cannot, you cannot serve God and money or anything else for that matter. And that's probably why the Apostle Paul says, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is before, I press towards the goal in order to receive the prize of the heavenward calling of God in Christ Jesus. You see, if you and I are not actively seeking what is above, we will inevitably be influenced by what is below. One individual who realized this was Karen Watson, who left the United States with a team giving humanitarian aid to the country of Iraq in 2003. She wrote a letter to her pastors dated March 7, 2003. She said this, Dear Pastor Phil, Pastor Roger, you should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible. My heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to Jesus. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. In regards to any service, she goes on to say, just, just preach the gospel. Be bold. Preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. And then she concludes her letter this way, describing the missionary heart, which is God's heart. Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more then some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. I was not called to comfort or success, she says, but to obedience there is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him in his care, Karen. And she, along with four others, were riddled by bullocks exactly one year later in the war-torn streets of Mosul, Iraq. What is it that can lead us to care more than some think is wise? To risk more than some think is safe? What can lead us to dream more than some think is practical and to expect more than some think is possible? It's the love and mercy of Jesus Christ that is depicted for us in Isaiah chapter 53. Think about it. No wonder the writer of the Hebrew says, therefore, since we are surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses, the Karen Watsons, the heroes of the faith of Hebrews chapter 11, and so many others down through the ages. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off all that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with patience, perseverance, the race that is marked out for us. How do we do that? The writer goes on to say, looking unto Jesus. 
For you see, when we begin to look at Jesus, the one who bore our sorrows and carried our griefs, as we begin to look at Jesus so amazingly depicted in Isaiah chapter 53, his human sufferings and his saving sufferings, at that point we make ourselves available to walk in the path of his exemplary sufferings all the way to the very end, whatever it might cost. It is only as we fix our eyes on Jesus that we do not hold back, we offer up. I urge you, therefore, brethren, Paul says to the Romans chapter 12, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, as the Phillips translation puts it, with eyes wide open to the mercies of God, to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. This is your true spiritual Worship. Would you pray with me? Today, maybe the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart in a very specific way. And I would like to give you the opportunity to mark that moment. Maybe the Spirit of God has spoken to you today about enlarging the tent, lengthening the cords so that you can better be a vehicle of God's long cords of compassion to this world, stepping into the life of a neighbor, maybe someone of another color, culture, and class to bring the good news of the gospel. Maybe God has spoken to you today about strengthening the stakes in your own life. These two foundational elements, the word of God and prayer. And you want to say, Lord, I want to grow in these areas. Maybe you've been holding back. Maybe your faith is hesitant. And maybe you want to ask God to infuse into your life a new audacious faith that is willing to risk more than some think is wise to the glory of God. Maybe he's prompting you to do something that is a clear declaration of faith in his faithfulness. If God has spoken to you in a specific way today, I invite you simply to stand where you are as I pray. Would you stand? Lord God, we thank you today. Thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. I myself stand before you, for I know that I need to be constantly stretched in my life in all three of these areas. And we ask that you would fill our hearts with your eternal compassion. You would strengthen our hearts through the word of God in prayer so that we would never, never, never hold back to the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask it. Amen.